Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has wrapped up her unannounced trip to Taiwan. Her schedule included a visit to Taiwan's legislature and a meeting with President Tsai Ing-wen. And we take a look at projected winners from Tuesday's primaries, focusing on the Senate and governor races in Michigan, Arizona, and Missouri. The State Department approves a multi-billion dollar deal selling missiles to Saudi Arabia. Some suspect this might be part of a quid pro quo. The Senate passes a bill aimed at helping veterans exposed to toxic burning waste on U.S. military bases overseas. The bill also addresses Agent Orange-related illnesses. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi met with Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen today during her day-long visit to the island. She sent a message of support from the United States in challenging times. Here are the details. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi wrapped up a closely watched trip to Taiwan on Wednesday. Her schedule included a visit to the Taiwanese parliament, where she reaffirmed the commitment of the United States. We want to increase interparliamentary cooperation and dialogue. Citing the CHIPS Act recently passed in the U.S. Senate, Pelosi said the bill would provide an opportunity for the U.S.-Taiwan cooperation in the chip industry. Taiwan's leader Tsai Ing-wen later received the delegation at the presidential office. There, she presented Pelosi with the Medal of Honor. In a joint news conference, Pelosi restated U.S. support for the island's democracy. Today, the world faces a choice between democracy and autocracy. America's determination to preserve democracy here in Taiwan and around the world remains ironclad. She noted that while respecting the One China policy, U.S. solidarity with Taiwan is more important than ever. But she also added that the U.S. supports the status quo and doesn't want anything done to Taiwan by force. And we want Taiwan to always have freedom with security. And we're not backing away from that. Despite growing military threats from Beijing, President Tsai said Taiwan will stand firm in defending its national sovereignty. She emphasized partnership with the U.S., pledging increased cooperation in security, economic development, and supply chains. We're grateful for the delegation's visit under such challenging circumstances as a demonstration of unwavering support to the people of Taiwan. The speaker's presence here in Taiwan served to boost public confidence in the strength of our democracy as a foundation to our partnership with the United States. Before concluding her visit, Pelosi headed to the National Human Rights Museum in New Taipei City. There, she met with several prominent democracy activists. Among them were a former Tiananmen Square dissident and a Taiwanese activist once imprisoned in China. At 6 p.m. local time, Pelosi's plane took off from Taipei Songshan Airport. Her visit to Taiwan was unannounced, following stops in Singapore and Malaysia earlier in the week. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan drew the ire of China's communist regime. Amid vows of condemnation and retaliation, Beijing also resorted to military threats. As Pelosi's visit was underway, Beijing launched live-fire military drills targeting six locations near Taiwan. China State Television showed footage of fighter jets taking off from military bases. Naval warships were also seen patrolling the area. Beijing claimed the drills were designed to, quote, amply showcase its military's combat capabilities, but Taiwan's defense ministry criticized the move. A spokesman said the drills challenge international order, undermine regional security, and amount to a blockade of Taiwan's airspace and waters. 
Meanwhile, Washington also warned Beijing against using Pelosi's visit as a pretext for military moves on Taiwan. More updates on tensions between Taiwan and China. Now 26 Republican senators have signed a statement supporting Speaker Pelosi's visit to the self-ruled island. Our next guest brings us some analysis on this. We hear from a former director of cybersecurity at the Department of Defense. He explains the significance of Pelosi's visit, as well as what the U.S. and Taiwan should do following the military threats from the Chinese regime. Joining us now is retired Colonel John Mills. Thanks for coming on the show, John. Thank you, Kevin. An honor to be with you. China is ramping up its large-scale military drills around Taiwan. Those started when House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island. What did these threats show, and how should the U.S. respond? Well, uh, this is uh, an increasing level of uh, militancy and aggression by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, And uh, so I I think we should take this very seriously. It's very good that uh, Speaker of the House Pelosi did go to Taiwan, uh, stuck to her guns, and did that. There is precedence. Newt Gingrich, as Speaker, did that in 1997. It is important that we continue to demonstrate resolve uh, toward Taiwan and uh, make it absolutely clear and unambiguous that uh, we will, uh, the United States will provide support in accordance with U.S. law under the Taiwan Relations Act. And there's also updates to the Taiwan Relations Act and the National Defense Authorization Act for 2023 that uh, bring, bring this situation into far greater clarity uh, to demonstrate U.S. resolve. Speaker Pelosi's visit certainly sends a strong message. These are unprecedented tensions across the Taiwan Strait. Where do we go from here? Well, I think we need to ramp up our our level of exercises and coordination with Indo-Pacific Command. So Indo-Pacific Command headquartered in Hawaii. We need to have uh, staff exercises uh, at the highest levels between generals and admirals of Indo-Pacific Command and uh, the Taiwan Ministry of National Defense. We, we probably should uh, send additional ships to the 7th Fleet based out of Yokosuka, Japan, so that we can fo- have more ships forward-based and ready to deploy uh, into the Straits and provide support uh, to Taiwan. We should also further codify the arrangements with Japan and Australia and India, to, uh, uh, known as the Quad, uh, for defense of Taiwan. We should ramp up uh, support, uh, uh, ammunition deliveries. Uh, you can never have am- enough ammunition and missiles. This will be a gunfight if if there are uh, overt hostilities from, from the Chinese Communist Party across the 100-mile strait. We want to make sure Taiwan has plenty of ammunition. That you can never have a shortage of ammunition. So we want to make sure they have plenty. And we want to make sure uh, that we, we have a persistent an enduring presence around in the air and on the sea around Taiwan. You certainly lay out some very comprehensive measures there. Do these threats from China carry any real weight? They have developed, as opposed to 1997 when Newt Gingrich went, um, China, the Army and the Navy, frankly, didn't have the capabilities to do much about it. Now they have a much stronger capability to surge uh, both in the air that continually tested Taiwanese airspace. They have a much larger fleet now uh, with, you know, we, we call it blue water with 
with large deck amphibious warfare ships that could support a, 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 an opposed landing on Taiwan. So they have much more capabilities now. So we need to take this much more seriously. Taiwan should also take some other steps that I think would be quite uh, change the dynamic, uh, like officially changing their name from the Republic of China to the Republic of Taiwan. Uh, they should ask with precision and clarity for immediate needs now. And I've done a lot of foreign military seal sales. I've seen how these uh, cases uh, uh, just can drag on agonizingly for years because of uh, improper language on the request. So they need to very clearly request arms, ammunition, and training support now uh, to uh, what, what's called the AIT, the American presence in, in, tai, in Taipei now, uh, so that they can receive the support they need. But we want to we demonstrate that it'll be as costly as possible if the Chinese communists make any move toward Taiwan. Well, that certainly is some very in-depth strategy. Thank you so much for your time. Retired Colonel John Mills. Thank you very much, Kevin. Always an honor to be with you. And back in the U.S., five states held their primary elections yesterday. We focus in on the Senate races in Missouri and Arizona and the governor's races in Arizona and Michigan. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the projected winners. You guys ready to take this country back? Thank you. Missouri's Senate race has Eric Schmidt as the projected winner of the Republican primary. And I am honored to be your nominee for the United States Senate. Schmidt has doubled the votes of his closest competitors. And not too far from here, I worked at Grant's farm while in college, giving tours and taking out the trash. And don't we need a little bit more of that in Washington right now? Schmidt is currently Missouri's attorney general. He will face off against Trudy Bush Valentine, the winner of Missouri's Democratic Senate primary in the general election. In Arizona, Trump-endorsed Blake Masters is leading in the Republican Senate primary. He will face incumbent Democrat Senator Mark Kelly in November if he wins. Senator Kelly ran unopposed. In the tight race for Arizona governor, Trump-endorsed former news anchor Carrie Lake has a slim lead over Karen Taylor Robson for Republicans. Robson is backed by former Vice President Mike Pence. On the Democratic side, Katie Hobbs is the definitive winner with over 70% of the vote. Hobbs is currently Arizona's Secretary of State. And over in Michigan, Tudor Dixon doubled the votes of her closest contenders with Trump's endorsement, claiming the Republican nomination. Dixon is a businesswoman and online news anchor. Her platform includes expanding school choice and empowering parents. She opposed COVID-19 lockdowns at schools. Dixon is also proposing armed security in schools and eliminating the state's personal income tax. Incumbent Governor Gretchen Whitmer ran uncontested for Democrats. She's faced extensive criticism from conservatives over her coronavirus lockdown orders. Whitmer has raised nearly $30 million since being elected in 2018. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania split along partisan lines and upheld the state's 2019 mail-in voting law. It means that current mail-in voting rules will likely remain in place for the upcoming November 8th elections. The decision overturned a lower court ruling that found the mail-in voting law violated the state's constitution. All five Democratic justices supported the new ruling. Both Republican justices dissented. 
Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf supported the ruling. He said it confirms that mail-in voting is a legal and constitutional method for Pennsylvania voters. The Republicans who brought the legal challenge are expected to appeal the ruling. The case goes back to 2019. That's when the Pennsylvania General Assembly approved universal, no-excuse mail-in voting statewide. Mail-in voting has been questioned by former President Donald Trump and Pennsylvania Republicans who say it opens the door to voter fraud and chaos in the vote counting process. The State Department is issuing a warning over a higher potential for anti-American violence in foreign countries. That's after a drone strike killed the leader of al-Qaeda last week. The State Department said on Tuesday terrorist organizations might plan attacks against U.S. interests abroad. They say these attacks may include suicide operations, assassinations, kidnappings, hijackings, and bombings. The agency warns attacks could happen in locations around the globe. U.S. citizens traveling abroad are advised to check government travel advisories before leaving for a new destination. Ayman al-Zawahiri, an Egyptian native, was killed by an American drone strike on Sunday. He took over al-Qaeda after Osama bin Laden was killed. Before his death, Zawahiri had been listed as an FBI most wanted terrorist. U.S. missiles to be sent to Saudi Arabia. The State Department approved a multi-billion dollar deal for this. Some suspect this might be part of a quid pro quo between the two countries. Here's that story. The Defense Security Cooperation Agency, or DSCA, said in a statement that the State Department has approved the possible sale of 300 Patriot missiles to Saudi Arabia for over $3 billion. The missiles in question are called Patriot missiles. In its statement, the DSCA said this proposal sale will support the foreign policy goals and national security objectives of the United States by improving the security of a partner country. The agency also said the missiles will be protecting the roughly 70,000 Americans living in Saudi Arabia. In July, President Biden met with Saudi Arabia's king and crown prince in a bid for an oil production deal. On Wednesday, OPEC plus countries, which includes Saudi Arabia, agreed to a small increase in oil production. On Tuesday, NSC spokesman John Kirby was asked whether the missile deal was a part of a quid pro quo so the Saudis will produce more oil. And that's just not the case. Um, we provide defense articles like Patriots uh, sell those to uh, Saudi Arabia because they have a legitimate need for air defense. In fact, one of the things they discussed on this trip was the potential or possibility for some sort of integrated air and missile defense throughout the region. And the Patriot batteries would contribute to that. He added that he'll not speculate on whether OPEC countries will increase oil production or not. The $3 billion deal would also provide the kingdom with the necessary training, field support, quality assurance support, and logistical support services by U.S. government and contractors. The U.S. Senate on August 2nd passed a bill to expand health care coverage. It will benefit veterans who were exposed to military toxic burn pits. The vote to approve the PACT Act was 86 to 11. The bill now heads to President Joe Biden's desk. Until the mid-2010s, the U.S. military used burn pits to dispose of waste on foreign bases. Various substances were burned in the pits, including chemical waste, rubber, plastics, as well as ammunition and human waste. That exposed U.S. service members to toxic fumes. The legislation directs the VA to conclude that certain respiratory illnesses and cancers are related to burn pit exposure. That allows veterans to get disability payments without having to prove the illness was a result of their service. The bill also associates high blood pressure with Agent Orange exposure. This provision could benefit hundreds of thousands of Vietnam War veterans and survivors. 
Authorities in Guatemala have arrested suspected migrant smugglers. They say they will now be extradited to the U.S. Guatemalan officials announced the arrests on Tuesday. The operation in Guatemala was a nationwide collaboration between the U.S. and the Central American country. The detainees were identified as the main leaders of a network of smugglers. A Guatemalan official says 19 people were arrested and four of them will be sent to the U.S. Hundreds of migrants die every year trying to come to the U.S. According to the United Nations, that number has been rising in recent years. And still to come, floods unleashed by torrential rains in eastern Kentucky have killed nearly 40 people, including four children, while thousands of others have been displaced. And the McKinney fire has wiped out the small town of Klamath River, killing at least four people. The blaze erupted in northern California on Friday. Hear more in just a minute, right here on NTD News. One of baseball's most revered broadcasters died on Tuesday at the age of 94. He called Dodgers games for a record-breaking 67 years and narrated some of the sport's greatest moments. Vin Scully joined the Dodgers broadcast crew in 1950 when the club still played in Brooklyn. He followed the team to Los Angeles in 1958. Then, for generations of Southern California fans, he was the soundtrack to summer. He personified Dodger baseball more than any player. Scully was known for his golden voice, articulate phrasing, and rich knowledge of the game. He announced some of the most historic games in baseball. In October 2016, at age 88, he left the Dodgers booth. By that time, he had the longest tenure with one team of any professional sports broadcaster. Scully was hailed as a national treasure by U.S. Congress and the national media. He also received the Presidential Medal of Freedom at a White House ceremony. Kentucky's governor gave a grim update on Monday. He said floods unleashed by torrential rains in the eastern part of the state have killed at least 37 people, including four children. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. According to Governor Andy Bashir, Kentucky authorities continued to work to rescue residents this week and provide food and shelter for thousands who had been displaced. We was actually in bed and uh... We, my mom was still awake. She's watching the rain. Uh, within two hours, uh, the floodwaters up on her house. We evacuated with what just we had. We, uh, me and my two children, my nephews, uh, we just had the clothes on our back. The governor explained many residents had been unprepared for heavy downfall overnight, leading to more deaths. Bashir declared a state of emergency last week and said over the weekend that authorities would likely be finding bodies for weeks as teams fanned out to more remote areas. You know, so we went on to bed and we woke up the next morning. Our neighbors at the bottom of the hill, the water was up to the top of their back door and I could cover their whole trailer. And we were stuck in, we couldn't get off of her hill for like two days. Days of heavy rainfall caused some homes in the hardest hit areas to be swept away. The Wolf County Search and Rescue Team published footage on Facebook of a helicopter lifting an 83-year-old woman from a roof of a home. The building was almost completely submerged. This was part of a five-person rescue. Just everybody think about the people that are still out there, you know, the ones that's been found every day, the ones that couldn't have been rescued, you know what I'm saying, think about them and their families. Because to us, the biggest thing for us was that we all got out and we're all here safe, you know. My mom's blind, so... That was the biggest thing for us is that we're safe and here together. 
The floods were the second major disaster to strike Kentucky in seven months. Following a swarm of tornadoes that claimed nearly 80 lives in the western part of the state in December. President Joe Biden declared a major disaster in Kentucky on Friday, allowing federal funding to be allocated to the state. What we and our partners are doing at places like this is providing people a safe place to stay. Food, water, emotional support. This is obviously so traumatic for them. Um, and, and just really comfort and hope. Uh, uh, somebody who's there, just letting them know that someone is there and for them and there to help. Power lines were widely damaged. According to Power Outage US, more than 8,000 households remained without power on Monday afternoon, but that was down from 15,000 on Monday morning. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The McKinney fire that erupted in Northern California on Friday has killed at least four people. Firefighters are struggling to contain the blaze, which wiped out an entire town. Here are the details. Roger Derry and his son have lived together in the small town of Klamath River for more than 40 years. They know most of the town's 200 or so residents. Now they're one of the few families left. When that fire came over that ridgeline, it had 100-foot flames for about five miles, and the wind was blowing it, and it was just coming down like a solid blowtorch. There was nothing to stop it. Over the weekend, a wildfire tore through the area, destroying most of the homes, businesses, and other buildings in the town. It's very sad. It's very disheartening. Um, some of our oldest homes, 100-year-old homes, are gone. At least four people died in the fire. Their names have not been released. No other injuries have been reported. The cause of the wildfire is not yet known. The dairies decided not to evacuate and said they were able to save their home, but most of their neighbors' homes are gone. Everything's gone except you go up toward the Oak Knoll, there's one or two houses there that are, that are still, still okay. The rest are all gone. I mean, it burns it so hot, you can't believe it. More than 100 homes, sheds, and other buildings have burned since the fire erupted Friday. The Northern California wildfire has burned nearly 90 square miles. It's the largest of several wildfires burning in the Klamath National Forest. But some recent rain may help. Uh, we actually had drizzle over the fire most of the night last night. And as you can imagine, that has really dampened the fire behavior. It's like kind of closing the flue on a chimney, really. A smaller fire near the tiny community of Happy Camp forced evacuations and road closures as it burned out of control Tuesday. Still, more fires are raging in the West, threatening thousands of homes. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A married couple in Hawaii has been accused of assuming the identities of two deceased children from Texas. Walter Primrose and Gwen Morrison have pleaded not guilty to federal charges, including conspiracy and aggravated identity theft. Prosecutors say they lived under the dead children's identities for decades. In 1987, they allegedly obtained birth certificate records for American-born infants Bobby Ford and Julie Montague. The real Ford was born in 1967 and died the same year. Montague was born and died in 1968. Prosecutors say they have pictures of Primrose and Morrison in a KGB jacket, which prosecutors entered into evidence. Morrison's attorney said Morrison has nothing to do with Russia. Both Primrose and Morrison were ordered to be held without bail. A trial is expected to begin on September 26th. 
Florida sea turtles are grappling with a gender imbalance made worse by climate issues. Recent heat waves have caused the sand on some beaches to get so hot that nearly every turtle is born female. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. So they're going to get a boat ride. Betty Zirkelbach is the manager of the Turtle Hospital in Marathon in the Florida Keys. It's been running since 1986. We rescue, rehabilitate, and return threatened and endangered sea turtles to the wild. We've been doing that for over 36 years. We cover over 200 miles of coastline. Um, we actually depend on visitors to the Keys to be our eyes on the water. When a female turtle digs a nest on a beach, the temperature of the sand determines the gender of the hatchlings. Zergobox said an Australian study showed that 99% of new sea turtle babies are female. The frightening thing is the last four summers in Florida have been the hottest summers on record. The scientists that are studying sea turtle hatchlings and eggs, they have found no boy sea turtles. So only female sea turtles for the past four years. According to the National Ocean Service website, run by the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, if a turtle's eggs incubate below 81 degrees Fahrenheit, the turtle hatchlings will be male. If they incubate above 88 degrees, they will be female. Melissa Rosales Rodriguez is a sea turtle keeper at another turtle hospital, recently opened at the Miami Zoo. With these temperatures being warmer, the sand is warmer, the water is warmer, overall the beach itself is a bit hotter than it used to be. We're hatching out significantly more females, which long term is not fantastic for the numbers of our sea turtle species. The two turtle hospitals are also battling tumors in turtles known as fibropapillomatosis, or FP. These tumors are contagious to other turtles and can cause death if not treated. The disease is widespread and is another obstacle for the already struggling turtle population. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. More animal news. A pig shelter in Arizona has saved hundreds of pigs from slaughterhouses and extreme abuse since 2017, but the rescue is now at maximum capacity. Here's the rescue operations manager. Right now I'm getting anywhere from three to five surrender requests per day. Um, and then because we also help rescue with government agencies, we're ranging anywhere from 6 to 10, sometimes upwards of 12 rescue calls per month. That could be anything from neglect to cruelty cases. Better Piggies Rescue in Phoenix, Arizona is currently caring for 143 pigs. The shelter has taken in around 800 pigs since it opens its doors in 2017. Many of the animals have since been relocated or adopted, but because of the uptick in requests, they have stopped taking in surrendered pigs from the general public. Rescue Operations Manager Dwight Dixon says what often happens is that many breeders use terms like mini pigs, micro pigs, or teacup pigs when posting the animals for sale. Then people are fooled into buying baby pigs. They don't realize that the animals will become quite large and they can't continue caring for them. Dixon says inflation could also be at play because the cost of feed has grown significantly. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, the U.S. and Japan are working to stand up to what they describe as Beijing's economic coercion, and several key industries could benefit from the effort. And wealthy Chinese are looking to leave their country, and they're expected to take a lot of their wealth with them. Why do they want to leave? Find out more right here on NTD News.
Welcome back. The commanding general of the U.S. Army Pacific pledged to uphold a free and open Indo-Pacific. That's after presiding over the opening ceremony of a joint military drill with Indonesia. And our interoperability and our, uh, our, uh, our unity really as, uh, as a group of nations that uh, are, seek to continue to have a free and open Indo-Pacific. Named the Super Garuda Shield, it is the biggest military training exercise ever hosted by the two countries. The Indonesian military says at least 5,000 troops from 14 countries are participating. The military drills run from August 1st to the 14th and are taking place amid heightened tensions in East Asia. Following the opening ceremony, General Flynn declined to answer questions related to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Asia trip. The U.S. Army Pacific works as a component of the military's Indo-Pacific Command. It oversees Army operations in the region and is based out of Fort Shafter, Hawaii. According to their website, the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command was established in 1947 and is the oldest and largest United States Unified Command. The United States is working with Japan to counter China's growing influence. That's according to comments from the U.S. ambassador to Japan. At the same time, Beijing is using its economic might to push for political change around the world. And today's Chenny Wu has more. The U.S. diplomat to Japan says that economic cooperation between Washington and Tokyo is going strong, with one of its top priorities set as countering China. Japan and the United States were the number one foreign direct investor in each other's countries. Not one year, but two years consistently. Now, this year is not done, but I think we're in a real strong position. That's all I'll say. Ambassador Japan Rahm Emanuel called Beijing a top player of economic coercion, adding if Beijing doesn't like what you say politically, they put the muscles on you economically. He gave Japan as an example. The country saw Chinese shipments of rare earth metals blocked over a territorial dispute, while South Korea suffered Chinese business boycotts while it installed a U.S. missile defense system. The idea that they could actually honestly say, we don't coerce, and then you have not one, not two, not three, many worldwide examples where they've used their economic market access to force a political change in a country. And I think everybody's woken up to that. Emmanuel is pushing the U.S. to deepen economic cooperation with Japan to counter that economic coercion. Key collaboration areas include semiconductors, batteries, and energy. Japan says it'll provide as much as $700 million to help U.S. firms boost memory chip output at a Japanese plant. American firms like Western Digital Corp. and partner Kyoxia Holdings are set to benefit from the deal. Meanwhile, Japanese industrial conglomerate Panasonic picked Kansas as the site for a new battery plant. The deal came together after President Biden talked with Panasonic executives in Japan. Around 10,000 wealthy Chinese are looking to leave their country. If they do, they're expected to take more than $40 billion with them and out of China. Why do they want to leave? And will the Chinese regime let them go? Let's take a closer look. 10,000 wealthy Chinese citizens are looking to migrate. That's according to estimates from investment migration consultancy Henley and Partners. The surge is reportedly the second largest predicted outflow of wealthy residents from a single nation this year, only second to Russia. But the difference between the two countries, Moscow is currently at war, while Beijing isn't. 
If those looking to leave China are successful, data shows they stand to take the equivalent of 48 billion U.S. dollars out of the country with them. Let's take a closer look at what's prompting the departures. Chinese authorities noticed the unusual migration flow months ago, when the country's months-long COVID-19 drive lockdowns started. China-based companies have taken heavy losses, and some small and medium-sized businesses were forced to close permanently because of it. With those harsh restrictions inspiring people to leave, the question remains whether Beijing will allow the mass relocation. China's passport application process has recently ramped up its requirements. While immigration lawyers say the rules surrounding what documentation is needed have become more complicated. On the financial side, large outflows of money could cause major consequences for China. Banks across the country have started limiting customers' ability to make cash withdrawals. Some of them allow account holders to take out a thousand yuan or less per day, equal to about 150 U.S. dollars. On the other hand, customers can still deposit money into the banks without issue. Financial experts say the policies could be an attempt by local authorities to control how much cash leaves the country. Just ahead, the Hungarian government declares an energy emergency in response to supply disruptions and skyrocketing energy prices. That's as the country experiences its highest inflation in nearly 25 years. We'll have all that and more for you right after this short break. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that the U.S. Senate will soon hold votes on approving Finland's and Sweden's bid to join NATO. The vote will kick off with a debate in the afternoon, but one senator says he will vote no. Senator Josh Hawley says he will vote no. He says the United States need to focus on the threat from China and the situation in Asia. He wrote in an article for National Interest saying the U.S. should not further embed itself in European affairs. He also wrote that the U.S. would not have the strength to fight wars in both Europe and Asia. NATO's 30 allies signed an agreement that allows Finland and Sweden to join the nuclear armed alliance. That's after the parliaments of member states ratified the decision. It would be the most significant expansion of the alliance since the 1990s. Russian President Putin said last month that he doesn't have a problem with the two countries joining NATO, but he said Russia would respond if NATO troops and infrastructure are moved into the two nations. European Union governments agreed to ration natural gas this winter to protect themselves against any further supply cuts by Russia. In Hungary, the government recently declared an energy emergency in response to supply disruptions and skyrocketing energy prices. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. Starting on August 1st, some businesses in Hungary will no longer receive energy at the government-protected price. This movie theater in Budapest is one business being hit by rising energy costs. We've been missing 40% of our visitors since COVID, and on top of that, now our energy costs will be more than double. We've already had price increases that we've had a hard time affording, but now we're going to face a much more radical rise on energy prices. Hungary's nationalist government tried to mitigate the most acute effects of an economic downturn and spiking inflation. Measures included imposing official price caps on fuel and levying special taxes on several commercial sectors. Hungary's currency is weak against the euro and the dollar, and the country is experiencing its highest inflation in nearly 25 years. If the companies facing the, the, the higher energy bills are trying to adjust, 
they are unable to let people, let workers go because if we, if we assume there will be some, uh, some opportunity, some improvement in the, in the energy crisis, prices will fall, then probably demand will rise uh, of those services. But compared to Western Europe, there's a serious labor shortage in Hungary. They need to rehire the workforce, but in a situation where there is a labor shortage in the country, they won't be able to do that or at a much higher level of cost when it comes, uh, when it comes uh, for example, wages. So in this regard, the situation is really tricky. Last November, the Hungarian government announced a limit on the price of gasoline and diesel amid soaring fuel prices. Gasoline and diesel cannot be sold higher than $1.20. The purchase price of fuel is exactly the same as the selling price. I should pay all my costs, including taxes, the wages of my employees, the running of the petrol station, and the cost of transport from the zero profit between the two prices. So this is obviously not a sustainable situation. Gas stations which charge more than the established cap could be shut down. Hungary plans to increase its domestic energy production capacities to ensure adequate supply and fight the skyrocketing energy prices. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A long queue of Russians snaked through a Moscow shopping center on Tuesday, waiting to get into H&M. The fashion retailer is flinging open its doors for a final time to sell inventory before making a full exit from the Russian market. Scores of consumer brands suspended operations in Russia after Moscow sent tens of thousands of troops into Ukraine. H&M, Ikea, and Nike are among the companies that announced plans for a permanent exit. Furniture giant Ikea has reopened for an online-only sale, but H&M opted to allow customers back in person. Russia is H&M's sixth biggest market. The exit is expected to cost the company almost $200 million and affect 6,000 staff. H&M did not immediately respond to a request for comment. H&M is the world's second biggest fashion retailer. The company rents its 170 physical stores in the country and operates them directly. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, despite the global economic situation, luxury goods makers are finding that sales are going well and even increasing. Wealthy consumers are spending big on expensive products. And hundreds of pilots in Portugal protest their airline company. What are their demands and what does the airline say? Find out more after the short break. Good to have you back. Several consumer companies have reported they are making money from their most expensive products, and they expect to keep doing so despite the cost of living going up. Here's more. Sharply higher interest rates, surging inflation, and an energy crisis have led many analysts to believe the global economy is heading towards recession. But millions of wealthier consumers are sitting on cushions of savings built during the health crisis. Now they're keen to treat themselves after two years of restrictions. Fashion brand Hermes reported a record quarterly profit margin. Sales rose sharply due to strong growth in Europe and the US. The company said it does not expect any slowdown in any region, even though the company raised prices 4% this year. It's not just in fashion where luxury is performing. Carmaker Renault said a new strategy of selling fewer but more profitable cars had paid off. It raised its forecast for full-year margins as a result. 
And while wealthier consumers' savings are still being eroded by inflation, they currently seem focused on newfound freedoms. British Airways also announced a return to profit on Friday for the first time since the global health crisis. Many consumers, though, are worried the economy will get rapidly worse this winter. In the UK, the cost of food has leapt by 10% year-on-year, and energy bills are expected to rise sharply. That will plunge hundreds of thousands into financial jeopardy and unable to spend on anything but absolute basics. Here's how an EU mandate to limit the use of Russian gas is affecting Spain. Offices, stores, museums, and hospitality venues in the country will no longer be allowed to set their room temperature below 80 degrees in the summer. They're also restricted from keeping their heat above 66 degrees in winter under a new set of energy-saving measures. Spanish authorities say shops will be obliged to keep doors closed and switch off store window lights after 10 p.m., while heating systems must be checked regularly to increase efficiency. Businesses, such as restaurants, are advised to close windows and doors to reduce the strain on air conditioning systems. The new measures are part of a bid to reduce the country's gas consumption by 7 percent. In addition, the government will make commuter trains free of charge. And now over to Portugal, where hundreds of pilots protested their airline with a silent march on Tuesday. They're asking for better working conditions. More than 400 pilots from Portuguese airline TAP marched in silence from Lipson Airport to the company's headquarters. The Commercial Pilots Union organized the march, and according to organizers, only pilots not on duty participated. During the march, the union's leader accused the company of bad management and a lack of transparency. The pilots are also protesting recent salary cuts and the airline's current management. In a statement, TAP Air Portugal said it regretted not being able to come to an agreement with its pilots, who are essential to the company. The airline also said it is working to find a solution for the sustainability of the company and its workers. Peru's Interior Ministry announced on Monday that it seized more than 11 tons of drugs during operations across the Andean country in the last 45 days. The drugs were confiscated in seven operations. Here's the breakdown of the drugs seized. 8.5 tons are cocaine paste, 1.2 tons are cocaine hydrochloride, and nearly a ton is marijuana. Authorities said the market value of the drug haul is estimated to be $244 million. A buried treasure is recovered after centuries underwater. Explorers have found numerous artifacts from the Nuestra Señora de las Maravillas, which translates to Our Lady of Wonders. The nearly 900-ton Spanish galleon sunk after it collided into one of the boats from its fleet and crashed into a coral reef near the Bahamas. The Our Lady of Wonders was carrying a lot of cargo when it went under, and millions of items have been recovered. This recent discovery includes coins, jewels, and gemstones. Those items previously belonged to knights who fared the sea. These items will be displayed later this month at the new Bahamas Maritime Museum. Researchers also say they will work with experts to try to figure out how the ship met its fate. Just ahead, in Mumbai, people make adjustments so they can live alongside leopards. The big cats breed, hunt, and maintain territory within urban boundaries. Big cats are coming into closer contact with humans as construction encroaches on their habitat. In Mumbai, people are making adjustments so they can live alongside leopards. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. This is one of the only cities of 10 million plus people in the world where large cats breed, 
hunt and maintain territory within urban boundaries. In Mumbai, there are leopards. In 2010, 20 people in Mumbai died in leopard attacks, according to an official from Sanjay Gandhi National Park. Mutu Veli's four-year-old daughter Darshini was the last known victim in 2017. I feel very sad when I think about her. My daughter is gone. She won't come back. She was only four years old. The indigenous Worli community has always coexisted with leopards. The tribal leader blames the attacks on the decline of the leopard's habitat due to human development. Before, we used to sleep outside our home. There were more leopards then. Before, the leopard used to get ample food like deer, rabbit, whatever food it needed for its appetite. But not now, because there is no jungle. Where will it go? People keep dogs, pigs, chickens, and the leopard comes to feed, and sometimes humans are also attacked. It's not his mistake, it's ours. Leopards in Mumbai have adapted to hunting feral dogs that frequent garbage dumps outside the forest. They tend only to pounce on people when cornered or attacked. The understaffed forest department has decided to focus on trying to get people to coexist with the predators. Researchers recently fitted five leopards with tracking collars. They say that knowing the big cat's habitual movements can help reduce accidents. Nine-year-old Pervi Lote saw her first leopard when she was five. Like other children, she knows the most fundamental rule. When you see a leopard, don't bother it, otherwise it may attack. Dairy farm owner Siraj Salema has lived all his life near Sanjay Gandhi National Park. He says he often sees the big cats. We have also adjusted. If we have to live near the forest, then we have to adjust to leopards. There certainly have been tragic accidents, but Mumbai has learned that trying to capture, kill, or relocate the cats isn't the answer. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Diet and spiritual beliefs are putting the Southern California town of Loma Linda on the map for longevity. Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Loma Linda, California is the center of health and longevity in America. It's a small town with only 24,000 residents and is in with close proximity to Los Angeles and Orange County. But according to statistics, this small idyllic city offers a great deal more than a small town feel. Loma Linda is one of the five original blue zones in the world and the only blue zone in the United States. The term blue zone refers to places in the world where people live the longest and are the healthiest. Over one third of Loma Linda's population live eight to 10 years longer than the average person. One of the main contributors to their longevity is diet, but the motivation behind their diet is religion. Loma Linda has one of the highest concentrations of Seventh-day Adventists in the world. About 9,000 residents are practicing members of the church, so almost half the population. A healthy lifestyle is central to the belief system of Seventh-day Adventists. Only 1% of Adventists smoke, according to a CNN report, compared to around 14% of Americans. They consume little to no alcohol and exercise regularly, and many adherents maintain a vegetarian diet. In addition, the lifestyle of Adventists is a noteworthy component to the lifestyle. According to the city manager, we have no bar in town, no liquor store in town, we don't sell liquor, so that's kind of unique. 60% of the diet of Centenarians who reside in Loma Linda is composed of fruit and vegetables. Another 30% consists of soy and legumes, dairy and whole grains such as oats. 
Another important aspect of an Adventist's diet is the regular consumption of nuts. In addition to a healthy diet, Adventists in Loma Linda also incorporate a number of other essential factors into their lifestyle. These practices include observing a 24-hour Sabbath. They focus on family, God, camaraderie, nature and volunteering. They focus on giving back to their community and of course consuming a minimum of five to six glasses of water every day. The Earth spun at its fastest speed on June 29th, completing its shortest day and baffling scientists. The UK's National Physical Laboratory said the Earth finished a spin 1.59 milliseconds earlier than the usual 24 hours. The rapid spin is in line with a trend observed in recent years. A few years back, scientists believed that the Earth's spin was slowing down. The International Earth Rotation and Reference Systems Service even added leap seconds to compensate. It is only in the past few years that things have changed, with measurements showing the Earth's spin rate to be rising. The faster rotation of the Earth poses a challenge to software when it comes to timekeeping. Meta wrote that leap seconds could create weird timestamps in data storage that would corrupt data or crash programs. The time change can negatively affect the functioning of GPS satellites. Smartphones, communication systems, and other devices can also face issues. People interested in taking private missions to the International Space Station will need to be chaperoned by a former NASA astronaut. That's according to a new proposal from the space agency. On Tuesday, NASA posted an online notice. It includes numerous requirements for upcoming private missions. These rules came from the lessons learned last April during the first such mission to the ISS. That trip was organized by Axiom Space. It was comprised of three paying crew members and an Axiom employee who was a former NASA astronaut. The requirement has yet to be finalized, but NASA officials say having a legitimate astronaut on board provides proper experience and guidance for the mission. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. 